My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrids, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the rise and fall of US foreign policy through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. But Boulder, um, explain to us one more time, um, because you do this in every, in every episode, what is the Western bubble exactly? In every episode, I'm trying to make it shorter. Um, so the Western bubble is the idea that Western countries, such as European, uh, Western European countries, uh, North American countries, suffer from delusions about who they are domestically, as well as in their behavior towards the rest of the world. And in particular, their democratic liberal credentials make them blind to their own destructive behavior uh, outside of their own boundaries, as well as their internal weaknesses. Every episode of this podcast follows the same structure. In order to analyze each topic, we answer the following five questions. What are the facts, where we provide a factual basis for our analysis? What is the bubble, where we analyze the overarching problem of Western delusion? What is the personal bias, where we see how leaders, especially Western leaders, are affected by non-rational factors? What is the damage, where we look into how and why the Western bubble is harmful? And finally, what is the future, where we lay out how each topic might develop further down the line? If you would like to know more about how this podcast started, who we are, or what exactly the Western bubble is, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Today, we will have a slightly modified version of the structure because the topic of US foreign policy is simply so extensive. So we thought that it would be a good idea um, when we talk about the rise and the fall of uh, US foreign policy that in this episode, episode six, we will talk about the rise of US foreign policy. And in episode se uh, seven, we will talk about the fall of US foreign policy. Today, we will spend most of our time on the question, what are the facts? And maybe we will already answer a little bit, what is the bubble? And then in the next episode, um, when we talk about the fall of US foreign policy, we will be discussing the other um, three questions. What is the personal bias? What is the damage? And what is the future? This being said, let's get to it. Older, um, so there won't be a real fact sheet here today, just because uh, that would just be me reading for an hour. Um, so what are the over, like, like, what's an overall list of the facts that we will talk about today? Well, so I... Um, created in preparation for this a, a, a list of main items that we will go through, um, all of them being pillars in explaining the behavior, specific behavior, foreign policy of the United States at any given time. Uh, the first issue here is to remember why we are actually talking about the United States and not other Western countries, because the United States is supposed to be the, the crowning achievement of the Western project in many ways, right? It is the West 2.0, after the European powers, the United States, um, took over and tried to perfect the, the whole concept of what it means to be liberal, democratic, etc. The second issue that we're going to talk about, the second set of facts, are the very strong foundations that the United States um, has counted on, uh, being a country that has a lot of potential to be a force for good in the world, which might surprise a lot of people who are nowadays critical of the United States because of obvious reasons. But the United States, at its core, has a very positive message to the world, right? And that's important to analyze. Um, then it will be important to look at the very impressive growth that the United States has gone through uh, since its independence in 1776, um, how it has grown economically, culturally, intellectually, 
very, very quickly and very organically. Then we will talk a bit about how during the Second World War, this historical process that was on an upward slope, if you like, um, gets corrupted. And there are some very subtle and interesting items there to explore. And then a mostly initially invisible rot sets in afterwards in the second half of 20th century. Not very visible. And on the surface, a lot of good things are still happening in the United States, such as the civil rights movement and other items. But there is a slow rot setting in. That is not visible until the 21st century. So first in the 1990s, then the United States has supposedly won history with the end of the Cold War. And it seems that the United States has achieved what it wanted to achieve to find the magic formula for history for the whole of humanity to follow. And then we will talk about the 21st century and how that whole system already corrupted for a, a good part of the 20th century. The whole system, the whole project starts collapsing and its foreign policy goes awry. Uh, the United States no longer knows who it is and starts doing very strange things in a environment of chaos and confusion. So let's go back to the beginning, um, to how the United States was born, um, basically out of a European mistake. So, so what were the exact um, like founding ideals and dynamics here? Yeah, so initially um, the United States is a was a colonial project. It was simply Europeans spreading out over the world with military mind, imposing themselves on other cultures and other nations because of their scientific and military and economic uh, power. Uh, and, but the United States had something different. And, and when we're talking about the United States until 1776 or 1775, uh, the US didn't exist, of course, but you had the 13 colonies and the colonies especially the English colonies and the Dutch colonies on the east coast of the modern United States had something that set them apart from many other places around the world. Namely, they were places where a lot of people would go to escape the problems that they faced in Europe. So it wasn't like the Spanish colonial empire or the Portuguese colonial empire, which was very much a expansion of Spain and Portugal into Latin America and elsewhere. Um, it wasn't like the Dutch colonial empire, which was essentially a trading, multinational trading nation, a, a, a large multinational with, with uh, trading posts all across the world. The east coast of America was seen by a lot of colonial immigrants to be a place where they could start a new life, where they could do something completely different from what they were able to do in Europe, free from um, the religious persecution that, for example, a lot of Christian groups suffered from in, in Europe, uh, free from the oppression of nobility, and from the oppression of uh, the, the strict European hierarchy that existed in society. Whereas again, if you compare that to Latin America, for example, uh, there it was just an, 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 a copy of the very same nobility and hierarchy that existed back in Madrid and back in Lisbon, right? So um, the, the East Coast was very much a free-for-all place where people managed to find themselves in a way that hadn't been possible in the old country in Europe. And that is the seed of something that then grows and grows and grows into a United States that says, we 
are Europeans, sure. We come from Europe. We have wiped out um, the native population in, in North America. The, the millions of people who lived uh, in North America before we came, they're not relevant to us. We're pushing them out. We have now started a new project that is still European because that's who we are, but we're going to improve on it. We're going to do it better. We're going to do Europe 2.0. We're going to learn the lessons from before. And this is very much the message that the founding fathers, once the revolution started in 1775, Declaration of Independence in 1776, the fight against the British Empire that they eventually, of course, won, um, had in the back of their minds when they started, we are going to set up a constitution that avoids all the old traditions that Europe has been bound by. We're going to create a country that is free for everyone to um, become a success in, where people are not bound by uh, who their parents are, not bound by the level of economic poverty they were born into. If they work hard, they can make something out of themselves. And they will not have a government imposing its will on that individual freedom to express yourself and to become who you choose to become. So what is then widely regarded to as the American dream? Um, yeah, uh, essentially, if, if you work for it, uh, you can make something out of your life. And how are these foundations values relevant on a foreign policy level, especially initially? Well, so with, with that in the back of our minds, that... And many, many people fled to North America to escape the religious and cultural and um, class oppression of Europe. A very natural outcome of that is that Americans did not need and did not want to identify themselves as somehow being a culturally homogenous and closed group which is quite innovative, right? Because most groups throughout history have defi defined themselves, identified themselves as a group that is different because of their traditional, um, back their, their traditions, their historical backgrounds, their family ties, their cultural ties. And not just does that help these groups to identify who they are, it's very importantly helps identify who is not them, who are the outsiders. It's this typical insider-outsider model that we've discussed already in previous episodes. The United States did not do that. It doesn't fit into this picture. The United States message was, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a human being, you should be free from oppression. You should be free from governments that tell you how to live your life. You should be free from nobility that tells you that you're their servant, or you should be free from um, being born into poverty and dying into poverty. And so the ultimate consequence at the global level, at the foreign policy level, is that Americans did not believe that their project was exclusive to their borders, was exclusive to the 13 colonies and then to the newly established United States. They said, come here and be like us. And if you don't want to come here, maybe you can copy our model and you can still become like us. We are taking humanity to a new level. We are not exclusive to a group that has an American passport or that can call, call themselves U.S. American citizens. We open our arms to the rest of the world. And that has huge implications for their relationship with other nations. Because then this was the potential to be a force for good in the world. 
Exactly. And in that sense, there is an interesting, um, if, if you allow me to very briefly fast forward to the 20th century, um, then we'll go back to the 19th century again. But uh, there's a very interesting commonality there with Marxism and Leninism and, and, and communism that also initially does not see itself as a project based on a specific nation or nationalism or even patriotism as such. Communism also said, in order to remedy the ills of the past, we need to open our arms to everyone. Workers of the world unite. We're going to create a new utopia. Now, of course, communism goes in a very different direction than the American dream and the United States project, but, they, but they're both children of a realization that the old European way of doing things does not work. The old European structures that limit individuals, that limit human beings, is not conducive to a better tomorrow. Um, in our little discussion prior to this episode, um, you called the 19th century in the United States a century that was under the radar. Would you care to elaborate why, why was the 19th century under the radar? Well, so this is a world where the United States is just born, again, 1776, so only a generation before the 19th century starts. The United States is still getting its footing. It has a very strong constitution. I, I recommend for everyone uh, who hasn't yet to read the U.S. Constitution and a lot of the papers of the Founding Fathers, the letters that they sent to each other. Um, it's an amazing project in which they said, how can we set up the most just, the most equitable and, and, and um, uh, productive society and how can we avoid all the mistakes of our predecessors in Europe and and they did a very good job at that but then once you've set that that intellectual project up once you've set up the philosophy behind your country then you need to actually institutionalize it then you need to create the the way the government works in a practical sense you have to figure out how the what the relationship is between Washington and the, the federal aspect of the United States versus the state rights and, and, and the state autonomy. So that takes a very long time. So the United States needs decades, many decades, to internally balance itself out. While that is happening, Europe is completely dominating the wave still. Um, the 19th century sees the, if you, if, if you like, the high point, if that's the right word to use, of the British Empire. Um, there are the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century, which again very much focused on Europe. Um, then there is the relative rise of Japan at a certain moment. So the United States is being overshadowed by lots of other large historical events that happen in the world. Um, and everyone looks at the United States and says, yeah, well, they seem to be doing quite well. They've got some issues such as slavery. And of course, that led to um, the Civil War in the second half of the 19th century. But um, overall, the United States seems to be growing. However, given their nature, given their background, they don't really seem to be very relevant to us. What's much more relevant is, are the British going to keep uh, holding on to India? Um, is Japan going to be a challenge to colonial possessions of the Europeans? Those are the big global questions. And the United States is no, not really involved in that, doesn't really want to be involved in that. They want to be setting up their own project. And yet, if you look at the statistics, over those 100 years, the United States is exploding economically and culturally, uh, population-wise. 
but nobody really seems to pay a lot of attention. And the United States, in a certain way, actually plays this game quite um, consciously. In the sense, in 1823, there's the Monroe Doctrine, named after James Monroe, president, who was also Secretary of State at the time, um, where the United States says, uh, Europe, you stay out of Latin America, Amer the Americas are ours, but we are not going to get involved in your politics. We don't want to be entangled in, in whatever you're up to. But know that we are now the Americas and the newly independent um, republics of Latin America are none of your business. You leave them independent. Don't, don't try some um, post-colonial, neo-colonial project there. So the United States is basically saying, you leave us alone and we leave you alone. And uh, that works very, very well for the United States because as a result, nobody sees the United States as a threat yet in the 19th century. Okay, so, so to recap this a little bit, we have relative, I mean, we have relative uh, economic success, population uh, boom. We have the horrors of slavery and, and still the, um, I mean, the, the killing of, uh, of the Native Americans. Um, but at the same time, nobody is really paying attention to the United States, partly due to the Mon Monroe Doctrine, partly because Europe, I mean, why would you pay too much attention to a continent or to a country that, that just isn't as relevant yet? Yes, exactly. And it's, it's very important here to, to explicitly clarify this, that when, when we talk about the growth of the United States and the rise of the United States in U.S. foreign policy, this is not to belittle the fact that they actually pushed out First Nation Americans, Native Americans, and that they did have this horrible original sin of slavery, right? Way uh, after Europeans had already rejected it. Now, Europeans for a long time were happy to still um, engage in slave trade, but within European society, slavery was frowned upon and um, made illegal way, way before this became a thing in the United States, right? So it is not to deny the existence of those two original sins, the plight of the original people living in North America and slaves who were brought from Africa, mostly from Africa, um, into uh, North America. It is simply to state that from a historical perspective, the United States was growing very, very aggressively, very positively um, in terms of human welfare for those who weren't slaves, right? For those who were actually benefiting from this project. So, and then that's important for listeners before people get angry in this day and age. Um, those two original sins are still important factors in the, in the American psyche and they need to be dealt with more than they have so far. And they are being dealt with. Um, the, the conversation when it comes to slavery was properly opened up with the civil rights movement of the 60s. It is just that if you take those two factors out, you see a very clear and positive rise of a project that could lead to something that is good and um, almost utopic for the whole of humanity. I mean, and then keeping in mind that those two factors were probably very much a reason. Well, I mean, no, not a reason, but definitely a factor in, um, in the rise is if you have free labor available, free forced labor available, then obviously this this will will lead to economic uh, to to an economic boom. Um, but okay, then so so now we've talked about this and why the nineteenth century was under the radar. We've talked about the uh, Monroe Doctrine, um, and now you have this economic boom. From this results a intellectual boom as well. Absolutely. So first you see an economic. Now the United States already had 
a certain intellectual base because of, because of the reasons we just stated, a lot of European intellectuals actually left for North America in order to and uh, in order to have the freedom to write and say what they liked and they not to be oppressed by European society in the traditional sense. Um, those were intellectuals mostly from England, which was, of course, a intellectual powerhouse, but also from France, Louisiana, um, and also Germans, to a certain extent. Germans, most German intellectuals came a little bit later, but um, a lot of Europeans actually educated in Europe, went to the United States to be part of this new project. But then, for the, over the course of the 19th century, most of the focus is on economic growth, on political stability, on dealing with the slavery issue. Um, by the turn of the century, by the early 20th century, you see the United States actually not just becoming economically the dominant force in global politics, but also uh, intellectually the most productive place, right? Where you have universities and scholarly centers and think tanks even who uh, start influencing the rest of the world with their intellectual output. Um, and so how much of this, um, of this intellectual output, but also still of the Monroe Doctrine, is then part of the United, of the United States foreign policy? The U.S. Um, has, until the, 20, until the Second World War, has consistently been linking its own identity with its foreign policy. That doesn't mean that it got everything right. It doesn't mean that it didn't make any foreign policy mistakes. Um, they did some strange things with Japan, for example. <laughs> um, they, uh, for a short period of time, decided it was a good idea to have the Philippines as a colony. Um, uh, they, they definitely, bef it's not as if uh, their foreign policy was flawless before the Second World War, um, but they were, in general terms, consistent with their identity, saying, we are not interested in old school politics. We are not interested in this silly game that Europeans and Asian powers have played of saying, this is us and you are you and we are going to fight each other um, in terms of power, in terms of dominance, in, in terms of hegemony. Our foreign policy is focused on letting people grow individually in the best way possible as they can. And, and you see this in the... Um, in the way that they actively avoid wars whenever they can, um, with some exceptions, like I said, the Spanish-American War at the, at the end of the 19th century, and there, there were some other exceptions, but they actively try to get a, uh, to stay out of all that old-school belligerence, and they focus on, through intellectual and economic output, convincing the world that they've got the right approach, and that they've got the modern approach, and that it is not up to them whether other people follow or not, but if other people pay attention, they should, right? I mean, so they, they won't force it on you, but you're a little bit you're a little bit silly if you don't follow us in our um, on our path towards utopia, on our path towards an uh, ideal world where we have learned all the lessons from history. Um, allow me to. To, to maybe um, attempt a transfer here, because the way you, you just described the United States, um, except for the part about we will let people develop themselves and individually, a lot of this sounds like China in the past 40 years, where it's very much this idea of balancing uh, great powers, avoiding big-scale conflicts, 
um, developing into an economic superhouse. Also, I mean, there's also significant developments in Chinese intellectual um, thoughts with the universities and with more and more scholars. Um, is this a recipe to becoming a world power? Um, do I now have to have to remain silent for the next 20 years and uh, develop economically and intellectually to become a superpower? It's it's. It's very, it's a very interesting parallel, and it's not so much a recipe to get there. I think it is a natural outcome of you being confident in your project, of you not feeling threatened by the outside world, but saying the outside world can learn from us, feeling that you're on a path to success. And just like the United States in the 19th century, China comes out of a 40-year period where they've grown tremendously, and they can be very confident and um, and feel very secure in their own ability to achieve things because China has achieved a lot over the past 40 years. In the same way, the United States um, could look back on 150 years, 200 years, um, somewhere in the 20th century, look back and say, we actually have done very, very well and we didn't need others to do this. So in that sense, there's a really interesting parallel. Uh, it probably is also the most convincing way to actually influence the rest of the world, right? It is, in many ways, way more subtle, but also much more long-term sustainable to say to other countries, look at our model, follow our model, we will try to get you a little bit on our side, rather than invading them with armies. Invading them with armies may seem like a a practical short-term solution, but in the long term, it's just not going to work. And in that sense, um, I think you're absolutely right that China is in a position that the United States maybe was in in the early 20th century. So what was it about the 20th century then? While the 19th century was very much under the radar, um, was then the 20th century, I assume the United States is now emerging and uh, placing itself on the radar. Yeah, so, I mean, if you, technically, if you look at the statistics, it took until roughly 1920 for the United States to become the foremost economic power in the world. Until that moment, it was the British Empire. But it's clear that over the, the, the decades uh, surrounding the turn of the century, the British Empire was being overtaken by the United States. Um, and the British Empire very much depended on its colonies that were becoming increasingly fragile, of course in terms of control. Um, so the United States, by the beginning of the 20th century, is clearly a force to be reckoned with, but they're still very hesitant to become proactive in their foreign policy. And this is most clearly visible in the First World War. Where in the First World War, they have their natural alliances with um, the uh, with Great Britain, the British, um, British Empire, and with um, France, and it would make an awful lot of sense for the United States to actively support those countries in their First World War fight against Germany. However, um, they consistently refuse. They they ref they 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 support economically their their natural allies, but they do not get entangled, as they would call it, in European wars. Um, even though from a foreign policy realist perspective, it would have made a lot of sense because they did, would not want Germany to win that war. However, um, the the moment that they're forced into it uh, in 1917, when the, the Russian Revolution breaks out and, and um, the, the communists take over in Moscow, 
and therefore Germany all of a sudden no longer needs to fight the East Front, that is the moment that they do step in because they don't want the risk of a, a bad ending of the war, right? But it's with a lot of reluctance, it's a, with a lot of hesitation before they actually go in. Why is this a bad ending for the United States if, if, if Germany had won the war? Uh, because they don't want um, the consolidation, uh, the continental consolidation of Europe that Germany is striving for. They, they, they're concerned that um, that project would actually be an aggressive imperial project versus a British empire that is slowly democratizing, that is slowly uh, going in a very different direction, right? Imperial Germany was very much the opposite of what um, the United States foresaw as the future of humanity. France had been democratizing, of course, ever since all the troubles from the 19th, uh, 19th century. And, and so it, from an American perspective, if you look at the ideological fight that was going on, it seemed clear that Germany represented the old way of doing things and the allies, if you like, represented the new ways of doing things. Now, I should be clear here, this is not anything remotely like the Second World War, because it wasn't so much a deeply moral issue. It was more about a vision for the future, right? Um, the First World War was not a fight between good versus evil. Mm. And then speaking about a uh, vision for the future, so then the First World War ends. Um, uh, and, then, and then you have Woodrow, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, coming out uh, with the idea of the League of Nations and with, yeah, so this... with, a, with a vision for the future. Yeah, and this is really interesting because the United States gets in in 1917 when, I mean, it's the, the war is not over by 1917, but uh, they don't have to do an awful lot to win the war, right? I mean, most of the hard fighting has been done by the French and uh, the British and the Russians at the time. So they don't have to activate their whole military potential. And yet they come out as victors of that war. And we know that that, from a historical perspective, is very useful, right? If you've won a war, you get a first seat at the table. You get to speak at the Paris Peace Treaties and, and afterwards, the United States all of a sudden was a player. Whereas if they'd never gotten involved in the First World War, they probably still would have been on the sidelines in the 1920s, even though they were economically so powerful. But that, that one year of fighting allowed them to claim to be leaders of the new world order after the war. Now, it's also important to remember that the First World War at the time was not called the First World War because <laughs> obviously people didn't know that there was going to be a second one. Uh, it was seen as the great war to end them all, right? It was the final war to sort of establish how are we going to organize modernity? How are we going to have a new world order uh, based on which principles, based on what kind of ideas? Um, and so it seemed that after the great war that would finish all other wars, the United States was in a prime position to impose its will on the world, which was still Eurocentric and dominated by the old powers. I mean, specifically because there was very, I mean, there was almost no damage done to the United States as a country. Uh, Zero. Because, I mean, yeah. soldiers died. I mean, the soldiers died, which is, of course, damage. Uh, you know, every person dying is human damage. But from a strategic perspective, the United States only benefited from this. And also just think about the economic perspective. Yeah. Um, because n n nothing basically broke inside the borders of the U.S., um, at least not not from the war. Um, so then, so then, so then we have this this idea of the League of Nations. Um, and is this still is so so then the United States here is still rising, right? This is very much still the rise of the United States. Um, still, people would look at Britain as the the center of global politics, 
because of, again because of its colonial possession so it's still not that the united states has established itself as the superpower that we know it um, in the later half of the 20th century but they are in a position to say look this war this first world war wasn't ours we helped you solve it in the end now it is time that people start listening to us and what does that mean the united states has consistently said that we have to stop this old way of doing things. We need a method, we need a structure for global politics to come together and to be able to resolve our differences in non-belligerent ways without this Prussian attitude of the military will solve issues, right? Um, but does does the United States becoming one of the, I don't want to call it superpower yet, uh, but one of the global powers, um, does that align with the foundations that we established earlier for U.S. foreign policy? Because, I mean, we, we talked earlier about how the United States would, in theory, reject something like this. Well, this is exactly where sort of the, the United States starts negotiating its own identity with the role of being an important player. It, it was much easier in that sense in the 19th century than in the 1920s or uh, 1930s, of course, because you're right. The moment you become a superpower, or at least a global power, is the moment that you have a certain responsibility. Countries will look up at you. Uh, they will look towards you and say, what do we do next? And they try to, the, Woodrow Wilson uh, tries to negotiate this, tries to achieve this by, the, by establishing the League of Nations, saying, we're going to use our newfound power, we're going to use our newfound influence, not to expand directly U.S. interests strategically, But indirectly, we will do so by um, creating a global community that follows U.S. ideals. So it does benefit us, but indirectly, uh, U.S. ideals of taking humanity to a post-old continent, old style of living of of behaving of interacting with each other we're going to have a league of nations where people can um, deal with trade disputes if there is the danger of war breaking out the league of nations can come together and uh, be a barrier between uh, the two warring parties or belligerent parties and this is one more step in line consistent with our identity of uh, saying Let's not oppress each other in any of the old school ways um, that we have seen for thousands of years humanity harm itself with. Now, obviously, um, this is the project that they attempted. But ironically, it was in the end the United States itself that basically blew up the League of Nations, right? Exactly. So the League of Nations uh, fails. Then between World War I and World War II, um, apart from the League of Nations failing, is there anything significant that shapes US foreign policy? Well, I think it is it is it is a start of realization of the American public, and that, that also was one of the contributing factors to the blowing up of the League of Nations, that um, they are special, that they are they always had this this feeling, right? Like we're we're now in the promised land. We have this enormous country at our disposal. Forget about the Native Americans. And forget about the slaves. We've got this enormous country uh, at our disposal that we can use to our benefit. And it's going very, very well. Um, they always knew that the United States was there as a type of promised land with even an evangelical nature to it. Keep in mind that the, the basis of the United States is Protestantism. 
which is obviously very different from Catholic Latin America. Um, so there was always this, this, this biblical sense of we're doing something new and special. But in the 1920s, 1930s, it's becoming clear to the American public that the United States is not just good for them, but is maybe this light on the hill for the rest of humanity to follow, that they are in that sense, better than everyone else, right? And I don't mean that in a morally um, dismissive way. I just mean that they have found a trick that no one else has fo uh, found yet. And that's when you see a very clear rise of patriotism, of nationalism within the United States. Um, I want to talk about the role of religion briefly, because um, when we talked about the ideals, so all the way at the beginning of this episode, of how people are fleeing from religion, um, They, they did come with, with Protestantism. Um, so I want to talk about the, the role of religion in foreign policy. How do, we, how do we see this shaping over these 200 years? I mean, maybe from the beginning and then kind of developing towards World War, uh, the end of World War II, uh, World War I. Well, so this is very consistent with what we've just discussed. Protestantism um, has many aspects um, that make behavior of decision makers different from Catholicism. Um, for one, it's not in line with uh, the Catholic Church to think of the world in non-hierarchical terms, right? The colonial powers that were Catholic established a world that all, in the end, led back to the Vatican. And, uh, you know, you can even talk about the Treaty of Tordesillas, where the Vatican basically divided the world between Portugal and Spain, but it was the Pope who was the final arbitrator in who gets what. Now, Protestantism obviously doesn't have any such centralized authority. And that is very much in line with this idea of let people make their own decisions. Let each denomination go a little bit in their own direction within certain limits. You still have to worship Jesus Christ and, and, and the Bible, but there, uh, there is a lot more freedom to explore who you are compared to the Catholic approach, which is exactly in line with what we've just discussed, of course. Um, As a result of this, there is also a more entrepreneurial identity often associated with Protestantism. This goes back to Max Weber, for people who have not read any of his work. Uh, the idea that Protestants are more serious about their own economic responsibilities because they don't have the Catholic Church to sort of have their back, right? And in very simplistic terms, um, if you do something wrong within Catholicism, as a Catholic, you go to your priest and they say, say 10 Hail Marys and God will forgive you, and you will still go to heaven. Protestants don't have this luxury. They don't have a priest to forgive them. The priest is not a uh, word, does not have the word of God inside of them. Priests are just a guide. Um, and, and as a result, uh, what, you, what, you, what you have is you can go to your pastor for guidance, but you will always be judged by God in everything that you do. And you have to be fearful of God as a Protestant. You don't have the Catholic Church to defend you. And so that means that um, there is much more a sense of personal economic responsibility, making something out of yourself. Don't depend on others. Don't depend on the hierarchy or the state around you to present it to you, which again is very much in line with this whole American project. So then if you take that to the foreign policy level, um, this Protestant approach meant that they were not interested in establishing the United States at the top of the food chain. They were not interested in creating a global system where um, the United States would be 
the, the, the new Vatican would be the new Pope and they would tell others how to, how to behave, right? It was very much like, no, this is, these are the main tenets of where humanity should go in terms of Protestantism, Christianity, um, uh, the belief, belief in the, the main principles that we've set out in the Bible, but within a certain uh, within certain limitations, you can adjust this project to your own culture, to your own identity, to your own belief system. And even when it came to completely different religions with completely different sense of morality, you can see that it's easier for Protestant policymakers in the United States to relate to them because they know what it was like to be oppressed by the Vatican. They know what it was like to be oppressed by the Catholic hierarchy. So when they then go into um, Southeast Asian countries or they go into African, they talk to African countries, it's going to be much easier. And African countries existed. We're talking about second half of 20th century, right? It is, um, uh, it's, it's going to be much easier for them not to feel this need to control but rather to cooperate into a direction that works for everyone. Okay. And now that we're speaking of control and uh, oppression, um, then World War II comes around the corner. Uh, and here the United States again tries not to get involved in the beginning, but then they get uh, dragged in. Um, and so here we can see the bubble starting, right? Right. So I... That's the thesis here that, that the, the Second World War is the start of the, the beginning of the end, if you like, uh, right? Um, even though if you were to ask most Americans about this, that this is the greatest generation, they call it often, right? The, the generation that won the Second World War and then set up the, the 1950s USA that eventually would uh, end up uh, defeating the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But... The Second World War is really the moment that the United States ideals become corrupted. Everything that we've said before, all of a sudden becomes twisted by history. And as you uh, rightfully mentioned just now, the beginning of the Second World War was one in which the United States was incredibly reluctant to actually play a part for the obvious reasons. Just like they were reluctant to be part of the First World War, they had something like, look, we don't like this Hitler guy. We don't like what's happening in Germany. Uh, we like it much less, by the way, than Germany of the First World War. Uh, so it was clear for the Americans that there was a moral component to what was happening in Europe in the 1930s that hadn't existed before. But the United States had built its whole identity on not getting entangled in those European conflicts. You see, a political elite certainly surrounding um, FDR, President Roosevelt, not to be confused with Teddy Roosevelt, who was uh, there uh, 30 years earlier, um, who actually feels that they need to get involved straight away, that this, this, can't, this, this can't stand, that, that, that Hitler is too much of an existential threat to humanity to not get involved. But the American public and the American system had been told for over 150 years that we don't get involved. So there's this huge fight between certain political elites, including the president and Congress and the American population in general. And eventually Roosevelt loses this fight 
um, in the sense that the United States doesn't voluntarily become involved. He manages to send support weapons to uh, England, uh, to the Soviet Union, um, to France, uh, until France is overrun by the Germans. So he manages to provide economic support, but militarily the United States stays out of the war. When in 1938 the war breaks out, when Germany invades Poland, France and Britain declare war, the United States does not declare war. Um, when uh, the Soviet Union and Germany go to war, the United States does not become involved in that. Then Pearl Harbor happens in uh, December 1941. And the United States has absolutely no say in that. They get attacked by the Japanese. There are some conspiracy theories that the United States provoked this and all that. I'm not getting into that. Um, if, if there were any truth to that, uh, then it would be Roosevelt, but it wasn't wasn't the American public. The American public definitely didn't want to get involved, right? I mean, it's it's clear that at this stage it is still a fight between that leadership in the White House and and sort of the American spirit. Japan declares war on the United States. The United States has no choice and uh, has to obviously retaliate. Even then, the United States does not declare war on Germany. People forget that. Even then, after the ally of Germany, Japan, strikes at Pearl Harbor, sinks the uh, fleet at Pearl Harbor, and war breaks out, the United States Congress refuses to declare war on Germany. And Hitler, almost confused by that, then says, well, hang on, if you're not going to fight us, uh, we have to be consistent with, with, uh, with supporting our allies in the Pacific, then we will declare war on you. It was the Germans who declared war on the United States, not the other way around. And, and this is such an interesting thing that people forget about how reluctant the United States was to actually go to war, which is hard to imagine for someone living in 2022, looking around where the United States is very comfortable using its military machine, right? And this is, so this is, this is the end where there's the last resistance, the last attempt by the United States to remain true to its own identity. And from that moment on, things start going wrong. Because now the United States is becoming a traditional superpower, right? I mean, so now we, we see in, uh, the increasing the military, it's becoming stronger, um, and, and economically it's going well as well. And so now the United States is a traditional superpower. Exactly. So uh, by in 1917 and 1918, there was a small spike because of their engagement in the First World War. But by the late 1930s, the U.S. military is minimal. I mean, it's there. There is a U.S. military, but it's, it's, it gets dwarfed by the European militaries. I mean, not even close. The U.S. has consistently said, we're not going to be that kind of traditional superpower. We're not interested in that. We're going to try the League of Nations. We're going to try to be the light on the hill for, other, for humanity to follow. We're going to set the right example about how we do things internally. And then hopefully the rest of the world will see that and will want to become like us consistently that approach. Germany, Japan first, and then Germany declare war. The United States obviously has no choice here. There's, there's nothing you can do. If someone declares war, they declare war. I mean, um, I guess there is, there is some theoretical speculation that the United States could have just defended its own borders, but that doesn't seem to um, be very realistic. The United States... Economy, which by that time is clearly the largest economy in the world with huge industrial capacity, not just already industrial activity, but a lot of overcapacity, a lot of capacity to, to expand its uh, factories, to expand its workforce. 
more than anyone else, goes into overdrive. The American economy goes crazy. And within a year and a half, builds up the largest military the world had ever seen until that moment. Tanks, aeroplanes, soldiers. Um, not in terms of sheer numbers. The, you know, the Soviet Union has always had larger numbers. Germany has had larger numbers. But in terms of technological ability, uh, in terms of just sheer production capacity, the United States in a year and a half goes from basically a military dwarf to a military powerhouse. And from that moment on, there's no looking back. So they, they win uh, the Second World War, just like they won the First World War. In the case of the Second World War, they played a more important role. I must say, though, that once again, this role sometimes gets a little bit exaggerated because the Second World War was really won by the Soviet Union. I mean, Britain and the United States definitely played an important part, no doubt. And I know that uh, a lot of American soldiers died in that war. But it, without the Soviet Union, it would have been a completely different story. Uh, but the United States, once again, comes out victorious out of this huge war. But unlike the First World War, they take the wrong lessons out of this. So 1945-1944 already, the Yalta Conference and, and Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt come together and say, okay, we're clearly going to win this war. It might take a few more months, might take another year, but it's a done deal. What kind of role do we now want to create? And from that moment on, the United States thinks in terms of traditional superpower. Why? Well, partially because sort of the, the, this militarization was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's a, this, this attempt at creating a utopian ideal society for the rest of the world to follow, uh, you know, seems to have been made impossible by the waves of history. Um, but also very practically because the United States is looking towards Moscow and sees a huge unleashed beast, a beast, Stalinist beast under Joseph Stalin, that is going to be a huge problem for this democratic liberal project that the United States espouses. And so once the Second World War is over, rather than saying, now we go back to who we were and we're going to forget about all this military nonsense and we're going to, we're going to focus on our essence and making our own country strong, what they do is they say, no, we have to resist the communist beast. We have to fight the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan later referred to it. Um, and at that moment, U.S. foreign policy um, becomes a weird hybrid of moral uh, righteousness on the one hand, like we represent freedom and democracy, and on the other hand, just very traditional superpower of politics. And so we discussed this earlier, um, whether to pick this moment as the beginning of the fall or whether to, to, to use the 1990s. But I think that we can definitely pinpoint um, to the end of the World War as the peak of, of U.S. foreign policy, right? That's the moment that the United States can look around and, and, and let, let's say that the decade after the Second World War can look around and everyone who's not communist looks at the United States and says, yeah, they are our leaders. They're leading our way into, first of all, because we don't want to become communists, at, at least, uh, you know, um, the, the, there are some countries that dispute this, but 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 certainly Western Europe and a lot of um, the European colonies that are about to become independent, that are decolonizing, are looking towards the United States and saying, okay, um, you, you've got something that we want. The problem is that you know, they are still thinking of the United States as this 
creation from the 19th century. Then they at that moment don't fully realize that the United States has turned into this hybrid model where they actually become uh, traditional, a traditional geopolitical power. So the United States starts in a way, if you like, abusing this prestige together with this military and economic power that they have after the Second World War to pursue own strategic geopolitical goals. And um, it takes a while for the world to catch up to that because they still very much play the game and they've been playing that game ever since then, right? It's, they've been playing the game like we're the United States, we're not a colonial empire. They, they're still playing it now in 2022. They can't get away with it as much as, as before. But certainly in the 20th century, countries look at the United States and say, yeah, okay, this is a moral project. Uh, you've got all the means. Please protect us, oh great one. And I think uh, the great... I mean, the greatest example we can choose here is um, basically the Marshall Plan, um, because I, I, I mean, for for me, it it still surprises me how many times you hear, or I heard the last five years, oh, we need a Marshall Plan for Africa, we need a Marshall Plan now for Ukraine, we need a Marshall Plan for Latin America. So, but you you have this very successful um, project, which again was the Marshall Plan. But with this, and I think this is where the hybrid comes in, is now for the first time the United States holds territory outside its own borders, where now it holds part of uh, of Germany. And here, yes, we're looking into economic development, but now we're also looking into building a military base and building military bases. And so now, so I think that this is then the first moment that we can pinpoint, oh, so we have left the traditional path and we're now onto this new hybrid path. And then when... I mean, because you already said the United States is no is is now. I mean, still trying to sell this hybrid path, but now it's really not a hybrid anymore. So when did it when did it leave that path of being hybrid and purely going to superpower mode? Well, they they're leaving the purest part, uh, the Puritan part, right? They're, and it's become a hybrid path, basically. It's it's so just to to clear that up. That that it's the the problem is that it is, has become a corrupted project. It's no longer a genuine project with a clear philosophical mission uh, at its uh, at suppose. You're absolutely right about the Marshall Plan. Um, at some point, I'm sure we'll do a episode on um, international development. But that comparison, the idea that you can um, apply what happened with the Marshall Plan to modern day development politics or economics is completely insane. It is a it's comparing apples with oranges. It doesn't make any sense. The Marshall Plan was essentially the United States pumping money into its newfound allies and these traditional allies, right? In the sense that the United States never wanted them, never wanted traditional allies. But all of a sudden, they've got this alliance with the former powers of the world, with France, with uh, Great Britain, who are no longer these empires of old, but still are very important players in, in global politics. The United States has this great alliance with them, pumps enormous resources into them. But that has nothing to do with moral economic development. It is creating a bastion against the Soviet Union. It is creating a bastion against the communist threat. And it is not comparable to development economics in, in a traditional sense, because all the institutions, all the... Um, infrastructure in terms of intellectual infrastructure, um, governmental infrastructure already existed in France and in Great Britain. They had been damaged by the war, but they were still there because they had been developed over hundreds of years, which is why you can't compare that to development politics 
uh, and the economics in, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa or something like that. That's a completely different story. Now, the Marshall Plan was clearly a geopolitical um, project, very successful, by the way, um, very quickly taking these European economies back to where they were. But it was relatively easy because the shell was always there. The infrastructure was always there. It just needed that boost from the United States. And in exchange, they essentially pledged loyalty to Washington. Now, that was from, from a geopolitical perspective, as, as a traditional superpower, that was a pretty good deal. It made a lot of sense strategically for the United States to do this. And it made a lot of sense for Britain and France, who were so desperately weakened by the Second World War and by the path of history, the loss of their colonies, made also a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you're a U.S. founding father. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you're an American who believes that you're going to do different uh, things differently. It just makes sense as a way to stop your enemy, in this case, the Soviet Union. And so, so now we're already talking about the Cold War and how this is developing. Um, so what's the influence here on U.S. foreign policy or how is U.S. foreign policy shaping in, in face of the Cold War? Now, it, it is interesting how this, um, in some ways, very much goes back to this hybrid thinking, right? Because the United States can still tell itself, policymakers in Washington can still tell themselves, this is not about traditional strategic power. This is not about world conquest. It is about ideals. It is about the liberal democratic American dream that we've worked so hard for against this complete opposite, communism, Stalinism. Um, that that wants to destroy this ideal. So in some ways, the, the American brain uh, policy brain is actually divided, right? On the one hand, they think in traditional strategic terms, how can we defeat the enemy? And it doesn't really matter who the enemy is. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. doesn't matter. And on the other hand, there's still this idea, idea of idealism, of no, we are America. We are, we are obviously just fighting for the whole of humanity. And, and so... Sometimes people talk about foreign policy, and certainly students I notice, in terms of um, some evil politician or some evil leader or policymaker manipulating things in order to satisfy their own narrow interests. But most of the time, and this and America in the United States in the Cold War is a very good example of this, most of the time we tell ourselves that we're actually fighting an idea, uh, a, a fight of idealism. We're fighting the good fight. We're genuinely trying to make the world a better place. And policymakers in Moscow did the same thing. They told themselves that they were making the world a good place. So you could see how per pervasive this, this hybrid thinking becomes in the United States. This not having to recognize this shift because you could easily argue that it's not a shift. You could easily argue that it's still an idealized struggle and it has nothing to do with traditional power politics and right so here we have identified then the bubble uh, answering our second question was the bubble it is uh, exactly this now we're going through the cold war eventually the cold war is over and now we're entering into the 1990s and i mean in the past we've we have described kind of the 1990s as the point where u.s policy uh, u.s foreign policy is on is on the demise um but then how do we coin this here? Is it just accelerating it because we suddenly have this moment of, oh, we've won history again? I mean, going back to Fukuyama, whom we've mentioned in, I believe, the episode on terrorism. Um, so so you, have, you have the situation, we've won history, and now suddenly everything is crumbling down. Or is this too simplified? 
Well, it's a little bit too simplified in the sense that um, it's, it's probably useful to look at how during the Cold War they got to that stage. So the United States eventually, I think it's fair to say, won the Cold War based on its internal strength. It, the project, the American project, was simply much stronger internally um, than the Soviet project. Uh, it turns out, surprise, surprise, that communism is not conducive to a well-run society because of all kinds of inefficiencies and all kinds of... You know, even if you believe uh, in the, the Marxist analysis, it is very hard to um, theoretically think of a model, and in practice we've actually never seen it, Think of a model where people don't fall into their own corruption within a communist system. It's, it's, the, the, the darkness of humanity comes out in communist systems. Um, so, so that doesn't mean that other systems such as capitalism don't have the darkness, but it's much more pervasive in, in a communist system. And over time, you just see the Soviet Union slowly decaying internally. By the 1970s, it was clear that the United States economy was way better equipped to deal with this global fight than the Soviet economy. By the 1980s, when Gorbachev came, came to power in the Soviet Union, it was, com it was completely obvious to him that he couldn't keep up this competition with the United States. The capitalist, democratic, liberal model had way more energy, way more drive than uh, what they could muster within uh, Russian borders. Now, that once again um, is sort of a process that legitimizes this whole American thinking, of course. Uh, they didn't defeat the Soviet Union in with military might, even though with the military machine they put pressure on the Soviet Union and in accelerated the economic collapse of the Soviet Union. But there was no Third World War to settle this score. It was an economic and cultural war that the United States, in the end, quite easily won. However, in the meantime, during that whole process, they did actually corrupt their foreign policy further and further. They started messing about in Latin America. Not, whereas before the idea was, we give you the right example and we can give you the tools if you like, but it's up to you. Now it becomes, no, no, we're going to establish regimes that may not even actually follow our own ideology in order to fight the enemy abroad. So they, they set up dictatorships in Latin America and elsewhere. Uh, they set up dictatorships in the Middle East. Uh, we talked about this, about the strongman that they supported and that eventually uh, led to the rise of Al-Qaeda and terrorism, international terrorism. Uh, we talked about that in the previous episode on terrorism, where the United States completely forgets about its traditional approach to the world and says, we need to defeat the enemy no matter what. And if we need to set up dictatorships in order to establish that, then we'll do so. If we need to get access to oil easily, uh, and that requires us to support the most horrific monarchy in Saudi Arabia possible, then that is what we will do. Um, if we need to have some mm, murderous dictator um, in, in Chile or in Argentina, we will set them up. No worries. Uh, we, are, we are very happy to um, corrupt ourselves in order to play this geopolitical game. So that is so... Yes, it is true that the United States won based on its own internal strength, the Cold War. They won the Cold War because they were simply better at what they did than the Soviet Union. But they did so while corrupting their very essence and their very identity. So then when the 1990s comes along, they once again seem to be legitimized in their project. It seems like we have won history. We beat the Nazis. Well, first we beat 
the, the bad guys in the First World War. Then we beat the Nazis. Then we beat uh, the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Now it's the 1990s. And we can drink from the keg of glory. We can, we can celebrate our ourselves. We can celebrate our path in history. And the 21st century is going to be this freedom rave in which everyone is going to be like us. Um, and no one actually raises their hand and says, hang on, are we actually still this United States that we were supposed to be? Are we still in line with the Founding Fathers? Are we still this non-traditional project that does things differently? Or have we actually become imperial ourselves? What, what about all the, those 200 military installations or uh, bases around, around the world? How about um, all these wars such as Vietnam that we got involved in way uh, further than we should ever gone in terms of foreign policy? Um, nobody actually asks in the 1990s those difficult questions about is the United States still the country that we would like it to be? Um, and then with the final fact or the final uh, happening, because we've so we've now discussed how this project is losing its integrity. Um, so then we have 9-11. Um, and I think then that's the moment when we can when we can start looking into, okay, now everything is properly, uh, well, now US foreign policy is properly deteriorating. Um, we've, we've already mentioned this in the uh, terrorism episode of why this was so significant, but like a, a very brief recap of, of how was this so significant to the United States. So the problem until 9-11 was that these difficult questions that we just mentioned didn't have to be asked because there was no apparent weakness. Economically, things seemed to be going quite well until 2001. Um, there were some issues. You can see since the 1970s, uh, income inequality skyrocketing, by, for example, in the United States, which is exactly one of the things that the Founding Fathers, I should point out, warned about. Right, so the founding fathers were very worried about 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 income inequality and the political power that came associated with that, um, but it wasn't as visible. The weaknesses, the 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 lack of clear identity, wasn't as visible. People, Americans could still tell themselves, "We are the land of the free and the brave. We are the leaders of the free world," and they still very much told themselves that. Right, um, Bill Clinton really liked to portray himself as leader of the free world. I mean, as opposed to who you have to ask then, as in. First of all, who are you leading and, and who is not free here? But um, they, they very much could still dream about themselves without actually having to confront some dark realities because there was no one actually telling them things are going badly. Things have been going badly for decades. 9-11 was the moment that all of a sudden they were confronted with their own fragility, with their own weakness. That the United States all of a sudden had to reconcile this utopian ideal, idealism, this idea of the 21st century becoming the American century, with a world that no longer was following the United States in the way they thought it was. Um, because the American project was not as appealing anymore. Now, obviously, it wasn't as appealing to Al-Qaeda, to Osama bin Laden. Um, uh, obviously, there would always be radical elements who would reject the liberal dream. That, that's not, but you could see that this was something bigger. 9-11 was like um, the moment that you feel a little bit of pain in your, in your arm. 
and you don't know what it is, but the pain itself is not a really big deal. And this is me not disparaging 3000 people dying, but from a bigger picture perspective, uh, 9-11 itself, you know, wasn't wasn't particularly harmful to the United States. The, it was just tragic, the tr tragic loss of life. But it is that little piece of pain that then uh, makes you go to the doctor and you look and then the doctor tells you you actually have cancer spread throughout your body. Right. It was the moment that that the United States needed to evaluate itself and needed to start thinking about where are we and who are we and where are we going with this? Well, then this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the rise and fall of US uh, foreign policy. Um, so we've now analyzed uh, all the facts and we've all we've already um, outlined what is the bubble here. Um, then make sure to join us again next week when we discuss the fall of US foreign policy. Um, what exactly this entails, what is the personal bias here, More, most importantly, what is the damage that this has caused, and then a little bit of an outlook into what is the future. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to jhasenstab at reiagroup.org, and we will try to incorporate um, them in the following episodes. Uh, th that is it from my side. Um, Balder, what closing quote did you bring for us today? I chose um, to take a quote from Woodrow Wilson, who we've mentioned in this episode, um, a quote that reflects very much this aspirational attitude of the United States towards the world. Neutrality is a negative word. It does not express what America ought to feel. We are not trying to keep out of trouble. We are trying to preserve the foundations on which peace may be rebuilt.